lead us this morning. Appreciate your ministry to us. That's, uh, that was great. I learned my lesson last week. Yes, or excuse me, last Sunday afternoon, oh, about 5.30, 6 o'clock, my phone just blows up with all these text messages. Uh, and I, I told a number of Dallas Cowboy jokes last week. Uh, it was certainly at the expense of Cowboy fans, and they let me have it. So <clears throat> I, will not, uh, I will not go there again. I won't go there. Unless you think it worked, unless you think somehow my jokes motivated them to victory uh, just let me know, but otherwise I'm going to stay out of that realm because it, uh, it, let a, it lit a fire in most of you, some of you, uh, a lot of you. Anyway, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. If you're visiting with us today, or perhaps you haven't been with us in a few weeks, we're just trucking along in our study of the book of Mark. And when we passed the midpoint of the book a few weeks ago, I pointed out that in chapter 8, the focus of the book changes. The point of the book doesn't change. The point of the book has been singular. The point of Mark is to proclaim the life-changing truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and because he's the Son of God, the life he has lived and the death he has died and the grave he has conquered accomplishes something for us that we refer to as the gospel. And the gospel, the good news is this, that even though I and every other human being on the planet has sinned and put themselves at odds with God, God made a way to reconcile me to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent to us his son, the second member of the, of the triune Godhead. He sent us his son to live a perfectly righteous life, to die a brutally unjust death, and to rise again conquering the grave and the sin that takes us there. And he did those things on my behalf, quite literally in my place, so that the penalty for my unrighteousness could be paid, and so I could lay hold of and claim his righteousness. I could take it as my own, and this is something I do by faith alone. And even this faith comes by grace. So it's not my works that earn me salvation, but it's an act of his divine and sovereign mercy. And all of that is really good news. And that's why we call it the gospel. And all four of the biblical gospels give us particular angles on the reality that sinners separated from God can be right with him through the astonishing, self-sacrificing love and uncompromised justice which is brought to us by the plan of God and the work of Jesus Christ. More than a century ago, a scholar named Max Mueller, he was a professor of Sanskrit at Oxford University, he gave a profound lecture to the British and Foreign Bible Society. And in in that lecture, he said, among other profound things, he said that in Christianity alone is salvation a divine gift that is given to men and must be given to them as a gift because they are neither deserving of salvation nor capable of achieving its requirements. And so all of us who call ourselves Christians, we are proof of Mueller's statement. 
We are the living demonstration that salvation is a gift and it happens to us because of the grace of God. And we talked about this last week, that God graciously accepts weak, imperfect, doubting faith in him. And he does this because he has to. He has to because we are weak, imperfect, doubting people. So it makes sense that our faith would take on the shape of who we are. And so the cry of the desperate father that we read about last week, his cry, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, each of us makes that confession, do we not? Lord, I I do believe in you, but I need you to run to me and help me because my faith is weak. And of all the prayers you pray, is that not the one God will be most quick to answer? A prayer that says, give me more faith, more trust, more dependence upon you, O Lord. Don't just get me out of a desperate situation. Don't just get me out of a bind. Don't just make my circumstances a little bit better. But but actually give me faith in you. And so back to my original point where the first half of the book of Mark focuses on the authority of Jesus, the second half of the book focuses on the cross of Jesus. The first half is why Jesus can save us and make us right with God, because he is God. The second, the second half focuses on how he saves us, by being crucified and raised to life. And, and put all that together, and what you have is good news the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you're here today, and if you've never responded to the gospel in faith, I usually save this for the end, right? I'm going to say that at the beginning. You can do it now. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can respond to the gospel. And maybe you've been waiting for your faith to be a certain kind, or of a certain strength, or arrive to a certain place. But we read this gospel, and we see that it's faith. It's, it's, it's a shred of faith. It's a faith that acknowledges that Jesus is real, that his death was for you, and it gives you life if you trust in him, whatever shred of faith you might have, because all things are possible to him who believes, especially salvation. So let's read Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We arrive there at verse 30. Jesus and his disciples on the way. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and, who, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last, last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. 
So if I asked you if the name Alfred DuPont means anything to you, what would you say? Those of you who have served in the Navy might have a head start on this one. He is he has three Navy vessels named after him. He was a Navy Rear Admiral in the Civil War, also in the Mexican-American War. He was also superintendent of the Naval Academy, all in all serving about 50 years in the U.S. military. He has a monument named after him in Washington, D.C., and an entire neighborhood bears his name, DuPont Circle. Now, I've been to D.C. probably 10, 12 times, most recently this last week to visit Mandy's sister, and Mandy's sister has lived in the DuPont Circle area the whole time she's lived there, eight, nine years, whatever. And I've walked through and around that circle and that monument that bears DuPont's names probably dozens of times. But this trip is the first trip that I decided I was going to find out a little bit more about this guy. So I go where you go to find out those things. I went to Wikipedia, and I found out his first name, Alfred. Uh, and I learned these other things that I just shared with you. And, and that's really about all I got sort of anticlimactic. I could have done a little bit deeper, but that's kind of what I needed to know. And though, why do I ask then if you've heard of Alfred Dupont? Because a monument is something you build to honor an important person, a person of noble character, a a person of measurable accomplishment, sort of a great man. And Washington, D.C. is full of these kinds of monuments. You know, a handful of them you've heard of, Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson and MLK, but most of them, the ones that dot the parks and squares and traffic circles of the city, you've never heard of them. You have to read the the oxidized plaques on the side of their statues, and even then you're sort of left to wonder what noble and honorable things this person may have done to, to be memorialized sort of atop a horse staring off into the distance, right? And virtually everywhere you go, these monuments sit, as they have for, for decades, people rushing past them, people never paying attention to the, to the oxidized plaques, never asking why those immortalized were so important that the, the street had to widen to occupy their greatness. Well, in the passage here, we come to the subject of greatness. Jesus redefines greatness. And so it's greatness that will be at the heart of the sermon today. We'll be looking at what it means to be truly great. And I've broken these eight verses down into three sections, a deliverance, a debate, and then a demonstration. First, a deliverance unto death. In verse 31, we we find the book's second explicit reference to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The first was in chapter 8, verse 31. Peter confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. He said to him, you are the Christ or the anointed one, which means Messiah. And Jesus responds to that confession with an explanation of what exactly that title meant. He explains that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and and be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. And then verse 32 points out that he said all this plainly, meaning he didn't speak in parable or in word pictures. He said it plainly, and the disciples knew exactly what he was saying. He was going to die. In fact, he says he must die die. He has to die. And in verse 31 of chapter 9, the text I just read that we're in today, he says it again. He says it as the 13 of them 
are moving south from the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is in far northern Israel. You might take a look at the map in the back of your, of, of your Bible. Those are useful. Uh, the maps in the back, don't just tear those out or, or use them to scribble on. You can go and, and, and get some bearings about where Jesus is when he's doing his ministry. They're at the base of Mount Hermon, and they're moving south out of that region through Galilee. And this time, as they're on the move, they have an ultimate destination in view. It's Jerusalem. That's where they're ultimately headed. Mark has not placed Jesus yet in Jerusalem. He's saving that for the end. And that's where they're on their way to. And as they're on their way, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's pouring as much as he can into them, giving them what they need so they can carry out their ministry after he's gone. And the topic that he cannot leave alone is his death. It's central to his coming, therefore it's central to his teaching. Jesus needs them to focus on his death. He needs them to see its importance in the plan of the Messiah. Its importance in God's redemptive plan to save a people for himself. The cross is inseparable from that purposeful plan. Back in verse 31 of chapter 8, There, he says, it's the scribes, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law who will put him to death. But here in chapter 9, he says something slightly different. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So it's not just Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, and such, that will take part in putting him to death. But generically, it will be the hands of men. Men will kill the Son of Man. Now, Just stop and think about that. The creator will allow his creation to destroy him. The creator will allow his creation to kill him. I mean, the humility in that is striking. At the same time, the love in that is even more arresting. And notice the word delivered delivered. This underscores that his death, it will be no accident. It will not be a gang of robbers. It will not be an assassination of some kind. He will be delivered, which is a word that communicates that his death will have a, a formal or legal aspect to it. Judas will deliver him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will deliver him to the high priest. The high priest will deliver him to Pilate. Pilate will deliver him to the Roman executioners. He will be delivered. But he will also rise. After three days, he will rise. That phrase is in the active voice, meaning he will raise himself. A dead man will have the power, which dead people are normally powerless, This dead man will have the power to raise himself up from the grave. Which leads to the conclusion in verse 32, they did not understand. This misconception that they're having about the Messiah, it just will not be budged. They cannot see the reality of his death. They cannot see... Uh, this reality of his resurrection. Nothing like a suffering Messiah has ever been taught to them. They simply can't believe it. And this underscores the fact that the father in the previous passage, the father whose son has just been healed, that father who confesses broken, imperfect faith, 
he has more faith than these disciples. In a single conversation, the father exhibits more faith than the disciples could conjure up in 24 months of following him. That's the contrast being played out here. And Luke 9.45, which is the parallel to this passage, says something really interesting. It says that the truth about Jesus was concealed from the disciples. Meaning, God kept the eyes of the disciples blinded here. Now, what you have to understand is their unbelief was theirs. Their unbelief wasn't God's fault. But he did allow them to continue in it. He concealed that from them. And so the last detail about this repeated news that Jesus was going to die, into verse 32, they were afraid to ask him about it. They were afraid to ask him to provide clarity on what he's talking about. Why is that? Perhaps because of what Jesus' fate meant for them. They knew as his disciples they would have to follow in his way. So that reinforced their fear. But you also have to remember how Jesus had responded to Peter in chapter 8. Peter, remember previously in chapter 8, he displayed his, his lack of understanding about the, about the Messiah having to die. Remember, he rebukes Jesus. Eww. How did Jesus respond to that? He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Literally, get out of my sight. I will not let you get in the way of the cross. So that's point one. Jesus, again, coming back to this idea his death, that he must die, it's the plan for him to die, and he will be delivered unto death. Next, a debate, a debate over distinction. Three facets, really, to this, this second point, a destination, a question, and a clarification. First, their destination is Capernaum. So this band of brothers is back in Capernaum. Bible commentators speculate the that the house they are in is the house of Peter. They had been in Peter's house before when they were in Capernaum, so it's likely they would reside there at this return. And, and Jesus here is not in Capernaum to do ministry. He's done a lot of ministry in Capernaum in those first eight chapters. But here, they're in Capernaum to lay over on their journey south. It says in verse 30 that Jesus does not want anyone to know that they're passing through Galilee. And this, again, connects with Jesus' desire to train his disciples. He does not want the distracting crowds drawn in. He doesn't want the big miracle show, this crusade. His focus is on teaching the twelve, which he does by way of a question. Good teachers always ask the right questions, and Jesus asks a powerful one here. He says, what were you discussing on the way? And right then and there, man, they know that they are in for it. The text tells us their response, that they kept silent. They kept silent. They are ashamed because they know that right after, right after Jesus has given them this teaching about his death, they start arguing over who is the greatest. No wonder they're ashamed. No doubt, Peter, James, and John, their trip up the mountain with Jesus, remember that in chapter 8? This transfiguration experience, it has sparked this debate. Three of the disciples are given special status. Meanwhile, there are nine who are left below, and they can't even perform a miracle that's in front of them. So they've got this infighting among the disciples. Three are proud of their new revelation. 
The other nine are struggling to find a way, find a way that they can sort of move up into the pecking order, maybe get into that top three. And Jesus knows this. He doesn't ask this question to gain information. He asks the question because he wants to provide instruction, and that's what he does. The text makes clear they're arguing over who was the greatest among them, and so Jesus gives them clarification on what it means to be great. And he does it in a simple sentence. You've heard it before. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The disciples are establishing a pecking order, and Jesus says, no. The best place to be in the pecking order is last. There's a really insightful parallel to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but write 1 Corinthians chapter 4 down in your notes. And there in 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, he's he's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a proud church. They were arrogant. They were conceited. God had given them extraordinary gifts, but the church is a mess. The church is very concerned with prowess, with greatness. Uh, Interestingly, the Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. And the Isthmian Games were held twice as often as the Olympic Games, which were held in Athens. So the Isthmian Games were held prior, in the prior year to to, to, to the Olympic Games and in the year after the Olympic Games. And so Corinth was a place that knew a thing or two about competition, about what it, mean to be, what it meant to be first, about the glory that was attached to being crowned the greatest. And so they already had this sort of mentality in their midst, and they, they, they took it and they brought it into the church, and it resulted in all kinds of popularity contests in the church. They knew all about greatness. They liked to measure greatness. They liked to mark off greatness. And some of the Corinthians... We're saying, you know, the greatest apostle is Apollos. And others were saying, no, no, the greatest apostle is, is Paul. And others were saying, no, the greatest apostle is Peter. You know, those are the guys, at least on the metal stand, gold and silver and, and bronze. But when you read 1 Corinthians, you, you notice that Paul is having a hard time with credibility among them. The Corinthians, they discount Paul's message because because of how unpolished he is, how unassuming and how undignified he, he is. Listen to this. He says in chapter 4, we are fools for Christ's sake. He's contrasting himself with the body of the Corinthian church. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Then in verse 9 of chapter 4, He says, for I think God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, men condemned to death. There's that phrase we have in Mark 9, last of all. You see that? And he uses that phrase intentionally. 
he's tying it to a picture that, it w- that would have been very familiar to the Corinthians. And it's not a, a, a picture that connects with those Isthmian games. It's a picture of a victorious Roman army returning to Rome. Returning to Rome after a conquering battle. And they would have this procession into the city. And first in the procession would be the generals. The generals riding chariots pulled by teams of horses. Then you would have the commanders, these men on horseback. They had distinguished themselves with great acts of heroism. There would be cheers and adulation and wreaths would be thrown and the crowd would shout, all hail, all hail. And then would come the troops and you'd look for your father or your son or your brother and you'd shout welcomes and hurrahs and you'd throw flowers as they returned from battle. And then after the troops would come the prisoners those who'd been taken captive, often the leaders of those defeated armies. And those, those prisoners would be in chains. And then, right at the end, were the men condemned to die. And they're on their way to the arena. And they would be thrown to the beasts and to the gladiators. These would be demoralized men. Men covered in dirt, all kinds of things have been thrown at them along the way. Dogs, perhaps, have been set loose on them. They're bloodied, and they are last of all. So you see what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. That's us. Those condemned men at the end of the line, that's us, the apostles of Jesus. There in Corinth, you had, their, you had your super apostles, but they didn't look anything like these condemned last of all prisoners. The super apostles in Corinth, man, they were first in line. Their names were up in lights. Paul is saying, no, that's not the measure of greatness in the kingdom of God. We're heading for our deaths. We are last of all. Powerful image Paul is drawing out there. And so what's the measure of greatness? Who is the greatest? I think Jesus betrayed it. Portrayed it, not betrayed it. Portrayed it. Portrayed it in the upper room when the disciples went to celebrate Passover. Jesus did something which only a lowly servant would do. He washed the disciples' feet. Jesus did that. The Son of God did that. The Lord of glory did that. He washed the feet of his created disciples. And you remember what he said when he did it? You should do this as I am doing to you. I give you an example, an example of greatness, an example of overwhelming greatness. I can't help but think of Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't stand upon his dignity. He didn't demand his rights everywhere that he went. He gave himself and he gave himself away on behalf of sinners like you and me. That's the principle that Jesus is giving here. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And also notice that Jesus doesn't say aspiring to greatness is a bad thing. 
that the innate ambition we all have to excel, he doesn't say it's unspiritual or evil, no. He doesn't condemn greatness, he reclassifies it. He redefines it. And he absolutely needs the disciples to see this. The religious world that they were used to observing, the religious world of their day, was predicated on greatness. The world of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the the Sanhedrin, it was all about ascending to an office or to a title or to a place in the system. And Jesus says, your place in the system is at the very end of the line. Don't, Don't look like what's in place now. You have to establish a new way. It's the way that I'm setting the example for. It's the way of a servant. What's he going to say later on in the book of Mark in chapter 10? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He would preach that to them here, and his life is going to be an illustration of it. Speaking of illustrations, our last point, a demonstration. A demonstration of discipleship. So Jesus takes a little boy, and he stands the little boy in the midst of the disciples. And then he, he picks him up, he embraces that little boy. It's a boy old enough to stand and also young enough to hold. I visited my 17-month-old nephew this week. So, so as this scene is, is laid out, that's who I'm picturing as I read about what Jesus is doing here. And as you interpret these words, you have to understand something of the culture in which Jesus is saying this. This is a culture where where infants, where small children, they were not valued. Small children were not valued highly at all. In our day, we sort of let our lives revolve around our small children, particularly as they're growing. But in this culture, children were a liability They were a liability until they could contribute. They were a burden until they could work and help and earn their keep. Before they could do that, they were just viewed as this sort of non-contributing mouth to feed. They were not valued. If anything, they were a little resented and despised. And so Jesus sets this child in front of them, and he begins to use this child as an illustration. He's going to say something very similar to this again in chapter 10, that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, these little children. But here Jesus puts his arm around this little little boy. He picks him up. He says to them, whoever receives one child like this, in my name receives me. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. It's often interpreted as though Jesus were saying, I want you to become like a little child. That the measure of greatness is you becoming like a little child. You become humble like a little child. But if you've been around small children, you know that that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Small children are not humble at all. My little nephew, Romy, man, it's been a while since I've been around a little guy for an extended period of time. That is a needy dude. Um, Give me this, I want that, I gotta hang in crying. It's just constant, right? Jesus isn't saying to the disciples, you must become like a little child. No, what he's saying is, You must become like me who embraces children, little children who are regarded as worthless, little children who are not going to write you thank you notes for all the ministry that you do to them. They're not going to applaud you. Little children expect you to serve them, and they're not always grateful for when you do serve them. 
that's the way your ministry is going to look. He's teaching them a valuable lesson that the measure of greatness is a willingness to engage in ministry with, with those who offer you nothing in return. Ministry to those who won't pay back that ministry. Ministry to those who won't pay you back anything at all. That's the heading he's putting them on. So when somebody comes into the church, just to apply this in, in a way, when somebody comes into the church and they've got problems and, and, and churches tend to attract people with problems, they come into the church, have lots of needs. You know, we want to be servants in the name of Jesus. Somebody comes in and they're not a doctor and they're not a lawyer and they're not going to you know, write big checks for the building fund. More likely they're going to need funds. They're going to need support. They're going to need time. They're going to need prayers. They're going to need attention. And what do we do? Perhaps we sort of avoid them. We say to ourselves, I, I, I definitely don't want to have anything to do with, with that person. The book of James talks about this. The poor, the disenfranchised, the, the rejects of society, they, they come into the church that James is writing to. And what does James say? What is the measure of true greatness in James' mind? It's ministry to the widows and the orphans. And again, in the context of the first century, they were the people of greatest need. They're going to involve your time and your efforts and your heart, and they're going to offer you nothing in return. So you see, you hear what Jesus is saying to us. If you want to be great, then go to the last of the line. Go to the end of the line. The measure of true greatness is you give and you give and you give and you give without any thought, any thought that you're ever going to get back. And that's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus. He lived this. He went to the cross for people who offered him nothing in return. He sacrificed everything for people that cannot pay him back and even sin when they try. We can never pay him back. We can never pay back what Jesus has done for us, and nor does he want us to. Just to conclude, essentially, Jesus comes to turn your world upside down. He came to show you that greatness means giving up being awesome. He didn't come and save you to humiliate you, but his salvation should absolutely humble you. And that doesn't mean you get this sort of aw shucks sort of mentality. No, it's much deeper than that. Humility is an acute form of awareness. It's an acute self-awareness. New York Times columnist David Brooks, he writes, some people think humility is thinking lowly of yourself. My favorite definition is humility is self-awareness from the context of others-centeredness. Others-centeredness. That means you're not serving yourself. You're serving others. Not concerned with your prowess or how it benefits you or the way it makes you look or the office it provides. No, you've forgotten yourself and you're thinking only of them. C.S. Lewis, I think, writes somewhere, 
about how the mark of a truly humble person, you'll, you'll know that you've encountered a humble person by how interested they are in you. That's greatness. That's Jesus. And that may not get you a, a monument, but the thing is, when you've, by God's grace, arrived at this, you won't even care about a monument. You won't care about an earthly crown or, or, or a title because you'll be given a heavenly one. And it'll come by his grace and it'll be for his glory and it won't be for your gain, but it'll be for eternities. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us, for your word, which is rich in its content and in its application, God. I pray that you would take this text, this teaching of Jesus, and as he is about to teach on humility for a good number of verses ahead of us, Lord, that you would just sow it deeply into our hearts. That you would, and this is a dangerous prayer, God, that you would assault our pride. And in doing that, and not humiliating us, but in humbling us, you would give us the grace that comes with that work in our hearts. Lord, we put ourselves down in front of you, asking you to have your way in our church. That, that we ask, God, to give us a mentality that wants to take our place, not ever in the front of the line, but always in the last of the line. Seeking the well-being of others, serving others, forgetting ourselves and being deeply interested in the needs and lives and hurts of those around us. God, we thank you ultimately for Jesus Christ, who exemplifies this, who went to the cross for us, creator, being delivered and being killed by his creation, an act that he performed so he could save a people for himself. We praise you and thank you that we're counted among those people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.